Well, we're, we're entering into a Daniel series. So we have been uh, kind of bouncing around. We're doing narrative preaching for the first year of our church plant, which means that, say, instead of going to one of the letters of Paul, as great as they are, instead of saying, like, hey, this is, this is what you do, this is how you live, whatever, we're going through stories instead. We're going to pick 52 stories. And if I were to pick a one-off story from the book of Daniel, uh, there's a few really good choices, right? Daniel in the lion's den, the writing on the wall, uh, the, the friends that go into the fiery furnace. Those would be a really good pick for a one-off story. But we're going to be doing a five-week Daniel series, and in order to have context, we want to start at chapter one, which is a great story. It's just maybe not one that I'd pick in the first three months otherwise of a church plant, uh, just, just so you know where I'm, I'm coming from. But it's a, really, it's a fascinating story, and it, and it, and it, introdu- it introduces us to the story of Daniel and his friends. So I want to open with this. What does it look like to be faithful in a faithless world? What does it look like to be faithful in a faithless world? There is a, a proverb, the book of Proverbs, that says, uh, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. There's this whole section where it talks about things that, in a sense, just make the world shake because they're so crazy. And one of them is a slave when he becomes king. And this happens with Daniel. He's, he's taken, he's kind of a well-to-do kid, he's an aristocrat, and he's taken, he's made a slave, but then over the course of his life, he becomes an assistant to the king, he becomes his sort of uh, sage, his, his wise counsel, and, and he ends up becoming second in command, basically as powerful as a king anywhere else because he was under Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful man on earth at a time. So this is, I, I love whenever I see that proverb, it makes me think of Daniel. There's, it's something that, the, it makes the earth shudder when a slave becomes a king. It's just crazy, it almost never happens. In history. So here's the background. And this is intro not only to this uh, sermon, but think of it as a longer introduction to the entire next uh, four or five week series that we'll be doing in Daniel. So Israel was this small, kind of medium sized fry in, in a world surrounded by much bigger and stronger empires. Uh, on one end, it had Babylon, who was kind of the new, the new guy, the big guy. Imagine what Europe felt about like New York City when like America was first growing large. That's kind of what Babylon was. It's like this new upstart, incredibly powerful, but no one really knows what to think about it. And on the other side, they had ancient Egypt, which had been a really big deal for a long time, kind of a legacy leader. They weren't as powerful as Babylon, but everyone knew who Egypt was. And Israel was sort of semi-subjected to both, and they kept kind of playing this game of cat and mouse between who they would partner up with and then who they'd rebel against. And if Babylon got more powerful, you know, they'd They'd, they'd be under their power. But they always had this urge to go back to Egypt. And I think part of it is just familiarity. They had been warring with Egypt. They had been uh, subjected to Egypt. They were both Semitic peoples, so they had a related language, right? They had been slaves already in Egypt. So there's a lot of shared culture there. And so in a moment of weakness that Babylon was looking like it was a little bit weak, Israel decided to gang up with Egypt and go against Babylon and, like, I don't know, try to f- stop giving tribute to it. And it was a big mistake. Uh, Babylon was, was done having it. But in order to give you the historical sense of this, think of like, imagine you're Mexico, right? You're no like small force, but you're also not like one of the top players in the world. So imagine you're Mexico, and it's like 30 years from now. And China's starting to take over the world, and you know, they're coming for you, and you're Mexico. And you're like, okay, we're not strong enough to take on China, but the U.S. is right next door. It's kind of, you know, it's a, it's a long-standing empire of sorts. Um, maybe, so we have to either subject ourselves to China, kind of the new guy in the block, and we don't really know who they are, or we could subject ourselves to the U.S. and sort of somehow jump in with them. That's kind of what's going on. It's like the U.S. to Mexico would sort of be like the neighbor that you understand, that you've kind of been dealing with for hundreds of years. And that's why Israel decided to go under Egypt's authority. And um, 
It was one betrayal too many for Babylon. So they got angry and came and, and they besieged Israel. So what is a siege? Uh, it was really common in ancient warfare. It's still used today. The idea is, even if a city is weak, if it has really tall walls, it's really hard to take it over. It just takes, you, you end up losing like 20 to 1 on your, uh, your, your soldiers. You lose a ton of soldiers just trying to get into the city. And it's a, it's a high cost, and no one wants to send their kid home in a, in a coffin just to take over some medium-sized city. So what they would often do is see, they, they'd besiege it in well, as, instead. So what that means is they would cut off a city from any resources. They would actually block up or divert the rivers that went into the city. And so then they would keep any food from coming in, any trade routes they would shut off, and they would, shut the, they would kind of divert the river. So there was no water in, no food in, and no waste could come out of the city. And if you do that for three months, six months, 12 months, you know, 24 months, eventually any city will fall because you, you run out of resources. And Babylon did this to Jerusalem, and Daniel and his friends were living there at the time when this happened. And because of this a, a massive invading army from Babylon coming in, all the Israelites fled from the countryside and came inside the city. And the city is just a tiny little thing back then. It was just a small percentage of the population that lived there within the walls. So all of a sudden you had all of Judea come together and hide behind the walls, and no one really had time. They, you know, no, they didn't have... Twitter and, you know, the New York Times and stuff, so they didn't know that the armies were coming until they basically heard them or saw them or, or caught wind of it from somebody else. So they all ran, and no one was bringing enough food provisions. And so the whole countryside comes into Jerusalem, and there's no food. So they only lasted about three months. It was winter time, so no one could grow more food. They were just all starving inside Jerusalem. And they thought, well, it's better to make peace and be a vassal state than to, you know, eventually just starve to death, and then they'll take down the walls anyway, and we'll still lose. So they surrendered to Babylon, to the prince, the general at the time was Nebuchadnezzar, and later he would be the king, but he was the general at the time. So they took the city. Now what's the first thing they did? They wanted to show that their god, whose name was Marduk, was supreme. So they went to the temple and stripped the the Israelite temple clean of all of its gold and silver and all the special vessels, like the cups that Solomon had made hundreds of years later and put in the temple. Uh, that's actually an important point. We'll remember that for week four or five, that that was the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did, is I'm going to take these vessels that are used in the worship of Yahweh, and I'm going to bring them back to the temple of Marduk, and that'll be like this, hey, you know, we own, we own Yahweh, right? Um, so remember that. Remember those cups. There's this uh, famous rule in writing. It, they say, like if you're, if you're writing a play, they say, don't introduce a gun in the first act unless someone's going to use it and shoot someone in the third act, right? Like you don't bother writing something like that into a story unless someone's going to use it. And these vessels are, these cups are a similar thing. But we won't get to that today. It'll be about week four or week five. So back to our siege. Imagine you're trying to destroy a city. How do you, how do you actually conquer the thing? How do you actually destroy it? I mean, do you just try to rule it and then let everyone live? I mean, if you kill anyone, everyone, then you're not really going to get any benefit from the city because there's no one there to serve you. So some people would have them just pay extreme taxes and let everyone live, and that way they could keep serving you. But what would inevitably happen is you'd get this revolt. And so very quickly in the ancient world, they figured out the best way to completely conquer a city. The way you do that is you take the most skilled people. You basically take the top 10% of society, and you cut it across, and you scatter them to the four winds. You make the rest of the 90 basically act as slaves, but you cut the top 10% of society away. Because if you think about it, if you took away all the leaders, even here in our society, if you took away all the religious, business, state, political, military leaders, you might only have about 10% of the population. But if you just scattered them all instantly, everyone else would be in complete disarray. Of all institutions, of all of their main leaders were just gone, 
society really falls apart, especially in the ancient world. So that's, a, that's what uh, ancient civilizations would do when they wanted to completely wipe out a people group. They'd take the top leaders and just scatter them. And that's what Babylon did here. So they took the leaders, the cream of the crop, the ones that made society hold together, and Daniel and his friends were a part of that group. It wasn't like they were crazy wealthy or anything, but they weren't subsistence farmers either. They were aristocrats, they were educated, they knew the history of Israel and whatnot. And it says, uh, 2 Kings says that Nebuchadnezzar carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, all the craftsmen and all the blacksmiths. None, reme <clears throat> none remained except the very poorest people of the land. Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar then took those of the royal family and of the nobility. And he, it says, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So you take the cream of the crop, and the city will be cut out from under its knees. But instead of just killing those people or just sort of getting rid of them, they instead would take them, bring them to their own palace, and train them in their own way. So it's kind of like taking the, the, you know, like Silicon Valley does this, right? Like they'll bring in people from India, like the very best and brightest. Instead of letting India really get out from under its own feet, they'll take the best people, right, and then bring them here. And that's kind of what, uh, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing, but by force. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, um, so what they do is, they, they, if, if you're a young scholar or scribe, you're already learned in the scriptures, you kind of know what's going on in terms of that skill set, then they brought, him to, they brought Daniel and his friends to Babylon, and they put him in a similar position. He'd be trained as a diviner, a prophet, an interpreter of dreams. He'd be an, um, I don't know how you say this, an exerciser of evil spirits, right? One who kicks out evil spirits. And then uh, even as a physician, that made me laugh when I read that they were going to train him as a physician, because now we've co completely separate like the medical world from the sort of the faith world, but there it was kind of this one and the same. Physicians and uh, interpreters of dreams were in the same realm. And the author of Daniel is gentle here. He kind of makes it just sound like Daniel and his friends were taken off and then retrained in the Babylonian way. Uh, but the suffering that Daniel and his, his cohort would have gone through would have been immense. And it's important to remember this today and then through the, the coming weeks, what they went through. So they're probably teenagers, older teenagers, and they're split off from house and home, from lands, from relatives. They only have each other. But there's another thing. So imagine you have all these young, conquered men from all over the Middle East. They're living in the court as conquered people, and they would have been, it, it says before, that these were basically eloquent, handsome, well-spoken men. And they'd be some of the only men around in the court. Now, who lives in a king's court in the ancient world? The only people that live at the court are the kingly family, the, the court officials, uh, eunuchs, who are servants, and we're, we're getting to this, and uh, the king's large harem of concubines. Now, again, very unfortunate as to how women were treated in the ancient world. Uh, a king would often have hundreds or even thousands of concubines, which is just f women who are made to serve the, the, the pleasures of the king, basically. Um, the only man allowed to be with those concubines was the king, and they were isolated from all other men. Now, imagine this. If one of the concubines got pregnant, and they were only allowed to be with the king, then no one would know, or everyone would assume that that, that concubine's child was in the kingly line, right? So they, they really tried hard to protect or to sort of isolate the king's harem from any other men because they wanted to know that any baby that was produced in this harem was going to be from the king's line, so he could be a potential successor um, to the king. And so they couldn't have all these lonely 
court officials who were eloquent and handsome and like t stolen from home, and then also all these lonely women of the harem who you know might only uh, have contact with with anyone besides their own you know fellow cohort just once you know every every couple of years because there'd be you know fraternizing. We'll just we'll just say if you have these groups get together. And many babies that were not the kings would probably be born, and, and they figured this out very quickly in the ancient world, probably before people even knew how to write. So uh, these you know, handsome, eloquent men are not allowed to be around the king's harem unless they're not a threat to the king's sole claim to, to be the, the father of whatever babies might be produced. So Daniel, the author, isn't telling us this, but almost as a rule, he, almost everyone is 98% sure on this, as a rule, they would emasculate or, or, or castrate any man serving at the court who was in a position of, of a servant who wasn't already, you know, Babylonian nobility or something. So it was very cruel, but not unusual at all. It was a standard, standard practice. And one of the clues, too, is that all of, the, all of the officials even above Daniel that he deals with are called eunuchs as well. It's the same kind of thing. It's an emasculated man who serves at the court, and that way he's not a threat to the king's whatever. Um, <laughs> it also served to quell uprisings, um, I hesitate to say this, I know we're recording this, but so you've got all these young strategic sons of military leaders, thought leaders, well-read people, they understand strategy, they know what it is to lead. And the ancient world was ruthless. And just like if you have, uh, if, if you, I don't know if you've done any, any farming, but if you have like a bull or any male animal that's causing you too much trouble, there's something that you can do to make it docile and subservient. It's the same emasculation that they, that they would do on a farm. There's something about the edge, the violence, the, um, if you have all these young men who are well-trained and know what, what they might be able to do to take you over, um, allowing them to keep that edge and that, that sort of, uh, that will to violence or to overthrow you is not smart. So it sort of served a dual purpose that these men would most likely have been emasculated. First for the purpose of the harem, but also so that you didn't have like all these conspiring geniuses under you just waiting to slit your throat while you're sleeping. So it was awful. It was forbidden by the, to the Torah to do that to a man or, or a woman, but uh, Israel's neighbors did it as a rule. So Daniel would live his entire life, uh, his entire adult life in a kingdom, not his own, his family, land's house, you know, everything taken from him, and even his, his, his very sexuality, his, his uh, possibility to ever father a child taken from him. Now, after that, you think, now how much more personal, how much more intimate could your subjection get by a conquering kingdom? But Babylon wasn't done there. They wouldn't even allow Daniel to keep his own name. They expunged his Hebrew name, Daniel, and they called him instead Belteshazzar, so just, I don't know, Belteshazzar, I don't know how he'd say it in English. And uh, forgive me, I used to be a Bible translator, so this, uh, this language stuff, I'm just a geek for it, and it's really interesting. So what they did is they took Daniel's name, the L at the end of Daniel comes from Elohim, it's, uh, it, it refers to God. So Daniel's name means God is my judge, or God judges me. And they're like, okay, so that's your name, Daniel, and so they, they wanted to keep that L root, that, that Lord or God root, similar. And so they made the first part of his name Bel, which is the same. These were cognate languages. They shared some similarities. So Daniel, then they take the L and they make it Bel, which is also, it also means Lord in their language, Belteshazzar. The verb Shazar in their language means, it's like a third person, whatever, I'll skip over all the weird grammar stuff, but it just means, um, it means let him or her protect, like let that one protect. And the T in the middle, Belteshazzar, it just makes it feminine. So what it's saying is, if it were just Belshazzar, it would be 
may Bel, the Lord, Marduk in their case, may Bel protect. But it's, uh, the T makes it feminine. So it just means may the wife of Marduk protect the king. That's the understanding is the king because all the names referred to him. And so his name was literally changed from God is my judge to may the wife of Marduk protect the king. So it's like he has to carry, I mean, you want to talk about your identity being stolen from you. It's like he had to carry that idolatry around as his very identity, his very name. Every time he heard it there reminded him that he was now completely subjugated to this, this foreign system, that they had taken everything that he was, erased it, and then made him, in a sense, a tribute to a false god. All right, I'll stop with the geeky language stuff. The goal and overall and all of that, in the, the emasculation, the name change, everything else, was in mercilessly uh, assimilating them into Babylonian culture. And the way that you assimilate someone is that you take away everything that somebody is and then you rebuild it in a new image. Like you rebuild it in the image of Babylon. And they were being assimilated in every way. I mean, years of education in Babylonian history, religion, language, lore, myth, they were completely dependent on the king of Babylon for everything. And the king said that they would eat of the same food that the king himself ate. And likely, most people think this was a really good portion of meat and wine. You know, here's, you're an ancient wealthy king. Most people don't have the money for meat. And that's what ancient kings ate, kind of show that they were rich. So they would eat a lot of red meat and a lot of wine. And here's all these young men. Their histories, you know, just erased. And they've gone from living a pretty, you know, healthy, measured lifestyle of, uh, you know, most people in the ancient world only ate meat once every week, once every month. It wasn't like here where we have meat pretty regularly. You had to be very wealthy to get meat regularly. So here, here they are li- living this healthy lifestyle. Uh, and all of a sudden, all these delicacies and like tons of red meat and wine are being thrown at them. They've just lost every other pleasure in their life, but now they're, they're throwing all this meat and stuff. So you can imagine how a lot of them were changing their diet. But not Daniel and his friends. Daniel asks his chief eunuch in charge of him not to eat the food. Not so much because it's impure. A lot of people say, oh, you know, this food isn't kosher, so Daniel doesn't want to eat it. The thing is, none of the food would have been kosher, whether it was vegetables, grains, whatever was given to him was not kosher, uh, but he had to eat something. Uh, But he didn't want to eat it because there's something about having lost everything else that's yours, and then the king himself is like, you're going to eat from my table. It's kind of like saying, sure, you slaughtered my people and destroyed my temple and raped my sisters and mothers, but hey, that meat's pretty good, you know, I'll just join in. It's kind of like the last step of the king of Babylon completely taking everything that belongs to you. So he can't stand to be made like one of them. It's really one of the only places where he has any freedom left is in what he eats and doesn't eat. Uh, Unfortunately, my kids also realize that one of the only bits of freedom they have is what they eat and don't eat because you really can't force them to eat something. So they've learned this too. Uh, Anyway, um, So Daniel has decided that he will remain faithful, and in a way, he will sort of civilly uh, disobey the king in order to maintain some identity and to be more faithful to his God. So he asks the eunuch in charge uh, if he can instead eat what's translated in our our translation as vegetables, and it's it's kind of sad. It's a a poor translation because what the the word means is uh, food that comes from seeds, which would be more like whole grains. So he asks if he can eat a diet that's based on whole grains, and there would have been vegetables in it as well. So he basically asked to be a vegetarian and eat whole grains instead of all this red meat and wine that was thrown their way. And the chief official is like, Daniel, I can't do that. I mean, if in 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, you end up looking like this scrawny, you know, unhealthy kid or whatever, while everyone else is strong and looks healthy, then that's going to be my neck on the line because I'm in charge of making you one of these you know, great servants in the court. And so that was a no 
And so Daniel's like, he, he was shrewd, right? You get this throughout the entire book. He's very shrewd. So he just goes kind of around him or goes under him and goes to somebody else. The person that was in between the first eunuch and Daniel, there was someone else who kind of like a minor manager. So he goes to him and asks the same thing. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables or whole grains to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. So he, he kind of planned this as, a, in a way, civil disobedience to the king, but he couldn't say, hey, I want to be just a little bit disobedient to the king. He had to sell it as something else. So he's like, this will make me healthier anyway. Why don't you let me try this? And it wasn't like he was asking for a separate menu, like, can you please make other food for me? Uh, the understanding is that while all the court servants were just gouging themselves or gorging themselves on red meat and wine, that they would have just taken whole grains and vegetables from the kitchen and kind of just plopped them in front of the Hebrew boys and said, here, you know, figure it out. Um, so some people say that the greatest miracle in Daniel is not so much like the lion's den or anything like that, but that a bunch of uh, teenage Hebrew boys were able to figure out what to do with whole grains and actually <laughs> make food out of it. I'm uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so Daniel challenges the eunuch. He's like, try me. You know, give me 10 days where I don't eat that food instead I eat the, the whole grains and vegetables, and we'll see. And so the eunuch decided, hey, you know what? That's, that's an acceptable challenge. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food, the, the wine and, um, and, and, and red meat, and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead or whole grains. So these kids who'd been eating mostly a plant-based, non-meat diet their whole lives, all of a sudden were just getting gorged with meat. And you can imagine how they looked at the end of 10 days, right? Like a stomach that's not used to digesting that quantity of meat, all of a sudden they're just like being pounded with it. Um, and so this, is, this is one way that Daniel already started to stand out from his peers. One, he wasn't afraid to kind of call it how he saw it and be somewhat civilly disobedient. But also, he, one of the roles that he was training for was a healer. And it was important that he would have this knack, he would have this general sense for knowing what would bring health and what would bring sickness. So you get this fresh crop of new, subjugated, you know, slaves in, and all of a sudden one of them is like, hey, you know the diet that you have everyone eat, that you've had everyone eat for centuries? Maybe you should change it. Um, and so it was one way for him, in a way, to stand out already from the beginning. And you can imagine, like, these kids that had been eating pretty healthy foods their whole life, that, like, you just slam them with a ton of meat, and you can just imagine all that wine, they're not sleeping well, they're not getting into the deepest stages of sleep, their pores are all, like, full of, like, red meat, you know, you hear about the meat sweats and stuff. You just imagine that for days. Um, again, you can see why this is not one of the stories I would have gone with for the first <laughs> three months of our church fight, unless it really helped to bring in some of the, the next ones. But it is, it is a cool a story. But, but you think, you know, so these, these Jewish teenagers then kind of shown, and, and they, they showed that, that they were set apart, that there was something special about them. But you're thinking, you know, so what's, you know, what's the big deal? Why this story, or why are we telling this? And the reason we're telling it is that I think this, this story cues up the rest of the book and it shows even if the stakes are small, Daniel knew what it was to be faithful in a faithless world. And that's, that's what we're looking at. What does it mean to be faithful in a faithless world? And Daniel finds a way to exercise what little freedom he could in order to honor God, no matter what the outcome would be. You know, sometimes when he, when he was faithful, it was just like, oh, you this actually works out better for us in the end. You're actually healthier this way, so that's great. But other times he's faithful and they're like, we won't have this at all. You're in the lion's den or your buddies are going to be thrown in the furnace. But this is setting us up to see that Daniel doesn't really care what the outcome is. He's going to be faithful regardless of what the society around him 
thinks. So, we don't have it this bad. It's not even close. The society we live in, though, is quite different, I'd say, than uh, 50 or 60 years ago. For about well over a 1,000 years, the morality of all Western society at large has categorically been not very different than the teaching of the church. There were big disagreements like, um, you, you know, they had slaves in ancient Rome, and then when Christianity kind of took over, they actually outlawed slavery in the gladiatorial contests and all that. But then people forget, and people are selfish. Slavery found its way back in in the colonial era, and then you had these arguments between Christians, like, oh, is it okay? Is it not okay? And eventually, of course, I think the right answer was reached in outlawing slavery. But these were all Christians going back and forth and using the same Bible as their, as their reasoning. But for over a thousand years, it was still com- they were coming from that same backdrop that the Bible was true and that Christianity was uh, the appropriate or true faith. Whereas now, in the last 50 years, we've seen this shift for the first time in a thousand years where this is not the case anymore. Christians today are being pushed, I'd say, on, on more and more sides every decade. And for us, whether an, an issue of ethics, uh, grades in school, uh, business stuff, you know, whether you're in academia or not, this, you end up facing a, a dilemma of faithfulness in a society that doesn't respect your faith. You'll kind of hear this. People will say things like, your religion is fine as long as it doesn't intrude in public life. And this sort of whispered, understood secret in that statement is, uh, the, that only secularism, autonomy, and consumerism are the acceptable worldviews in the public sphere. And now, this is really strange to say because as a pastor, I'm much more comfortable, much more likely to harp on uh, hypocritical religious people. I'm much more likely to want to bring truth to power, to be hard on the people who, who have power. Um, but, and, and I'd say the reason that I feel more comfortable with that is that that's the example we have from Jesus, right? That he's always taking truth to power and he's always slamming people for being hypocritical and, and, and overly religious in, in um, a human way. But what's interesting is I think our society is quite different in that uh, religion doesn't really make up the leadership structure anymore. We have a different worldview that's running things. But it was hard to, when, when I read this, this passage, I realized this was kind of the main point that the author of Daniel is getting at, that Daniel is faithful in a faithless world. I was like, ooh, I don't know if I want to preach that. Um, Because I think it can be a a place where a lot of pastors fall back on, and they want to harp at the world and be critical of the world, and then they build themselves up and make them feel like they're righteous or whatever. And that's really not a posture. um, That's really not a posture I want. And I know that when you say things like that too often, it can communicate this message subliminally that if you have somebody who's, right on the border of faith or not. Somebody who's coming from a secular background, naturally, you know, if someone's not a Christian, they're going to be just imbibing the, the views of our culture. And a lot of people will think, oh, should I invite this friend to church? Should I invite this friend to my small group? And if you hear too many sermons where someone's like, be careful, the world is going to get you, and be faithful in a faithless world, sometimes people's um, decision-making can be influenced. Like, well, maybe I won't bring that friend to church, or maybe I won't you know, reach out. Because naturally, if you bring your, you, I don't know if you guys have ever had this happen where you bring a non-believing friend to church and there's like this really like terrible message that's shared and you're just like, why this week? Like, why did I ever do that? And so I just, one, I want to encourage you. That's not my personality. That's not the kind of church we're in. But um, there, is a, there is a call for this, right? That it, 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 there's a time and place for this and the Bible makes clear that God does expect a standard of behavior of, uh, from his followers. And when you work through a whole book or through a good portion of, the, of a book like we're doing in Daniel, sometimes you get a passage that like, like sits right in your sweet spot and other times you get one that you're like, ooh, like, I gotta be careful how I share this. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from in this. I don't want to communicate that we're a, a church that 
is like an us and them church. Like the world is like this, but we're like this. That's not our, that's not our jam. Um, but it is important to remember that really for the first time, I'd say in Western history, our generation, or maybe the one right before us, has had to be um, kind of an outsider. We are a minority. We're nothing like Daniel in Babylon, but we're heading toward this area where our views are viewed as either kooky and kind of strange or completely unacceptable in the public sphere, depending on what you're talking about. Daniel is faithful to God in Babylon, and sometimes, you know, this helps him out. Sometimes they're like, oh, that, that actually makes you guys healthier. But sometimes it gets him thrown in the lion's den, and I think our faithfulness will do the same thing in our lives. But I want to encourage you guys and encourage myself as well as a, as a reminder to let your organizing principle of life be faithfulness to God, regardless of what society says, uh, regardless of what's popular. Uh, sometimes society will champion you, sometimes they will call you names, uh, but be faithful to God in your work, in your business, in, uh, in the clinic. My wife works in the clinic, so I just think... Not many people here probably work in a clinic, but that was like a natural pull for me to write that. Uh, you know, in your classes, the way you write your papers, man, I, I remember going to the U of M, and even, two, even in 2005 through 2009, if you didn't write your papers in a certain way with this clearly understood worldview, you would not get an A on those papers. And so just, maybe this is shrewd, or maybe it's kind of, uh, I don't know, immoral, I'm not sure, but I would just write my papers to feed the philosophy of the the professor, like, I would feed them what they wanted because I wanted the A. And if I would push and I would argue with them, they'd be like, I respect your argument, B+. Plus. But if I would just feed them what they wanted, they would give me an A. And I was just like, well, I don't actually believe some of this, but you, know, you, you have to make these choices in the society we live in. That was you know, 15 years ago, and I'm sure just every year it gets more and more that way. So when you get to these dilemmas, when your identity is being stripped away, forced to conform, conform to the pattern of the world, let me just encourage you to turn to Jesus. I think that uh, there's a lot of parallels between Daniel's um, being pulled into slavery and the Jews who were in slavery before in, in Exodus when they were uh, fleeing from Egypt. And I imagine that Daniel thought often of the Exodus while he was spending his time in Babylon. And that God, who had saved the Jewish people once from slavery, would do so again. He would elect them, he would cover them, and with the grace that he offers, he would, he would find a way to deliver them, just like he had from Egypt. And I'm, I'm sure, I believe that Daniel went forward confident in that. I mean, he had such confidence in these future episodes that we'll get to. And he, he, went, he went forward confident in that he, his God was the same God that rescued the Jews from Egypt. And whether he received praise or the death sentence, he knew that he was sitting, in a sense, in the grace of that God. So I just want to encourage us to turn in the same way to Jesus, who rescued us from slavery to sin. He delivered us from our bondage and gave us true life and freedom, just like God had rescued the Israelites from Egypt. Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so, I think in our culture, there are some things, like if, uh, if people don't take part in, uh, in pornography or sleeping around, this, this is interesting, um, if you look at the stats of uh, society's view of pornography, in just the last 20 years, it went from being kind of weird and like you don't mention it in public, to being completely normalized. Like, 
it is very normal for someone to just be openly like, oh yeah, I, I watch this and this, and this is my genre, and this is my thing, or whatever. Like, the, if you read the stats on this, it's like, it's, it's just crazy how quickly society has changed on that. So, if you're like, well, I don't take part in that, or I don't, you know, sleep around, partner to partner, whatever it might be, whatever has changed in the last 50 or 60 years that uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims don't take part in because of their faith, there are some of those things that'll be like if the world finds out you're not involved in it, they'll kind of smile and be like, oh, that's kind of goofy, you know, that's kind of strange, but it doesn't affect me. But there are other times when they say, that's absolutely unacceptable. And I have a fiery furnace prepared for you, whether it's social media or something else, your career, you know, just, we're actually, this is interesting that for about, for about 1,000, 1,500 years, we've been an individual guilt-based culture. People feel um, that they're either right or not right based on what they do or, or they look to the individual, whereas like say if you go to China, they'll look to their relatives. Like if they do something wrong, they don't necessarily feel so guilty as specifically for the thing they've done, but because of the shame they bring to their family. Whereas here, you know, we, we feel shame. We, we feel bad that we bring shame on our family. But like if you do something wrong, you feel bad because you did something wrong or because you got caught for it and because it's on you. Not like, oh, my grandfather and his grave would be so ashamed. Uh, but just in the last few years, we have, because of social media, we are ramping very quickly back into a shame society, right? That society has sort of a, a prescription, like this is the way that is right, and that changes very quickly, but there's a way that is right this year, this month, and it won't be the same next year, but there's a way, and if you don't conform to that, people openly threaten to shame you on social media over it. It's just amazing how quickly we become, we're, we're moving into a shame-based society again. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting off course. Um, I was just saying that because of your values, sometimes people will notice that you're different. Say, oh, that's kind of cute, that's kind of different. And other times they'll be like, no, I've got a furnace for you and you are going in it. I'm going to torch you, I'm going to do whatever I can uh, to ruin your career. And in those times, when that does happen, and I believe it will, it's already actually happened at this church a couple times, I've shielded you from what's going on. Um, but uh, no, just people in the community that don't know what Christians believe and they're like, ah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I just want to encourage you in those moments to turn to Jesus. Be faithful to God regardless of the circumstances. And even be shrewd, be cunning. I mean, Daniel wasn't afraid to kind of give a different reason than the one that he actually had. Um, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, right? And I'd also say do good work. I mean, Daniel, the reason he rose to be basically the second or third in command of all of Babylon is that he did incredible work. He actually served faithfully, not always. When he was commanded to do something wrong, he didn't. But he served faithfully and he was actually a good worker. The king saw him as a helpful, loyal worker. So do good work in this society that we find ourselves more or less and less at home in and serve faithfully. And just uh, as you're serving faithfully, as you're doing good work, leave the rest up to God and trust in him. So I, I, if I could counsel my own undergraduate self, I'd say, you know what? Maybe be okay with a B-plus paper and maybe go into office hours and really push and have a back and forth with the TA rather than just feeding them what they wanted and taking the A. Um, serve faithfully, leave the rest up to God. Let me pray to close us and then I'll have... Okay, come back up. Um, Lord, we, uh, we pray for your help in, in serving and living faithfully in a faithless world, Lord. We pray that we could be uh, salt and light, that we could be, uh, as we're trying to be faithful in a faithless world, that we wouldn't have those errors, that we wouldn't act like that's what we're doing, uh, but that we would just serve, that we would keep our head down, and that we would uh, honor you and leave the rest up to you, Lord. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.